You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max, and it's a uh, cold rainy day in New York. I have a long walk to the subway, and uh, I don't really like umbrellas. For some reason, I have a thing against umbrellas. So I had this long walk in the cold, damp rain today, and uh, my whole body feels kind of cold. I've got the shivers. i got a warm cup of coffee. I'm trying to heat up. But I'll tell you what feels great. My feet. And that's because I was wearing Bomba socks today. Bombas is a new kind of sock company. They are making fantastic socks. They will keep you warm when it is cold, and they will keep you cool when it's warm. They've got this long staple cotton, this fantastic cotton that just kind of hugs your feet, feels great. They've got wonderful designs, arch support, no toe seam. They've really, like, engineered a fantastic sock here at Bombas, and you should try them out. Another reason to try them out, for every pair that you buy, Bombas will give a pair of socks to someone in need. So go to bombas.com slash longform. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash longform. You'll get 20% off. Your feet will be warm, and you'll be supporting the show, which starts now. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host from The Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky from Longform and also Aaron Lammer at a distance. Who, who is this? Stop calling me. We're, we just prank call Aaron now. I'm not giving Barack Obama any more money. Uh, I'm in California. Hello, guys. Thank you for thank you for patching me in. I'm on a lovely landline. It's good to hear from you, Aaron. Uh, who else are we going to hear from in this episode, Evan? This episode, we're going to hear from Nate Silver. Everyone knows who Nate Silver is. Nate Silver is the founder of Five Thirty Eight. Uh, he writes about politics. He writes about data and politics. He runs his own operation that does both of those things. They also write about sports, pop culture, you name it. Um, they also have podcasts. They have uh, a really good podcast, the 538 Elections Podcast. They did a podcast special that I loved that was about the Dean Scream. Find this podcast and listen to it if you haven't heard about it. It's really, really interesting. Aaron, please do your Dean Scream. Oh! We're going to go to Minnesota. I'm very excited to have Nate Silver on. We have wanted to have him on for a long time, but I feel like now is the right time. We are in the middle of the election season. He is actively predicting. They are on it. Excellent. Um, Aaron. Yeah. You're far away. It's hard to keep in touch when you're far away. So true. So no, one, true. no one can deny this. And you don't always have time to, to call everyone in your life. You might need to... Uh, 
mail them in some sort of a bulk fashion. If you're doing so, you might want to get yourself a newsletter over there, MailChimp. More than 8 million businesses, Aaron, use MailChimp. Atavis does. Yeah. Longform does. Yeah. And uh, we thank them for people sponsorship. Are, uh, people are leaving behind their landlines for me. Yeah, exactly. Hey, if you're thinking in your ter- thinking of turning in your landline for an email newsletter, consider MailChimp. <laughs> Aaron, I'm going to hang up on you now because yeah. uh, okay. Evan's going to interview Nate Silver. Okay, talk to you guys next week. All right. Nate Silver, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. So we're in ESPN's ABC's building in Manhattan. You have a big open plan office out there with a bunch of people in it. That is a long way from like a guy starting his own uh, blog less than 10 years ago, right? Yeah, so 538 was founded in March, I think March 4th, 2008. Wow, you know the date. I'm scared that I know that. What, right? what, was it was it pegged <laughs> to some significant event? No. So what happened is I had um, so graduate college in 2000. I got a consulting job that I I basically hated. I mean, the people that were nice. Why was it so bad? Because it was like not very challenging and not very creative. I mean, it was okay. It was a job, but you know, I I don't know. I mean. Um, you know, I was one of those kind of upper middle class kids who you grow up and your parents are always like, well, the important thing is go to a good college. Um, and I went to the University of Chicago and they're academic. So there's like not really a, a plan beyond that. It's like, oh, <laughs> crap. Now I graduated and now I have to get a job. And these guys are offering to pay me what actually wasn't that much money, but seemed like a lot of money when you're living off, you know, beer money. They really get you with the, that uh, on campus recruiting. I remember going into the like career center and saying, I want to work for a newspaper and the person saying, have you considered the uh, consulting? <laughs> They're on campus. They will, you can go talk to them. Well, this too was like, it was, I uh, graduated in 2000, so it was a time when the economy was quite hot. And so all these kind of nerds at U of C were getting investment banking jobs and consulting jobs. And the investment banking jobs were like, well, you have to work 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week. I'm like, I don't want that, right? <laughs> um, but I wound up taking a job with KPMG, which was, again, I had good bosses. It was a well-run branch of the firm, but... Um, but it was like all of a sudden, you know, all your coworkers are like commuting to the suburbs. I'm like, I'm not ready for this part of it yet. So, <laughs> right. um, so I, but I used my free kind of mental bandwidth in various ways. And one of which was to develop a system for forecasting baseball players called Pakoda. Sold that to Baseball Prospectus and began working for Baseball Prospectus for a few years. So kind of was in the money ball. It's a little cliche, but in kind of the money ball wars, right? Right. Yeah. When that was being still a being debated and still being, whether it would work. And, still being debated and yeah. like a lot of research was being done and um, it was a fun time but I then got the elections bug in late 2007. I lived in Chicago at the time so. You'd left the firm after you sold the. Yeah so I quit the, to play I forgot the whole poker part. Yeah yeah, um, yeah we, we can talk but about yeah, that. I, I quit in 2004 from KPMG to um, work for Baseball Prospectus but I made my money mostly by playing online poker which was in a bubble period then if you remember like the daily fantasy two-week bubble we had like uh-huh. a two-year right. <laughs> there's a two-year poker bubble which could actually be kind of profitable if you were halfway decent at poker so for both of those things let's start with the baseball modeling now is that something that you knew how to do from academic training or you just on your own said i'm interested in developing models like where did it come from this like statistical aptitude I mean, I don't think it's very academic. It's more like wanting to 
solve problems. You know, when I was a kid, I used to do a lot of um, computer programming in, in like basic and logo. But you have a knack for like being self-taught and for problem solving abilities. And, and, you know, you have a certain amount of persistence where once you have this desire, this question, like, how can I figure out how to forecast how baseball players will do? And then you kind of keep plugging at it until you kind of get a better and better answer and build things from a simple model into a more complex model over time. When you were doing that, you were doing a combination of some coding, like building it as a computer model, plus the mathematics statistical part of it? So I was doing most of the programming in Excel, okay, which is really probably a mistake. I mean, Excel has some virtues, right? For things that don't require a lot of computing power, it's a well-designed program, and I'm a visual learner, so to have things laid out. But like, if you're doing anything more advanced, you should use a real programming <laughs> language, right? So I don't know. That's a downside of being self-taught now. So when I manage people now, and they're like, oh, I'm kind of doing this thing in Excel, and I'm, not, I'm like, no, dude, just take the time, and trust me, take the time and learn how to code in R or Stata or something else. Uh-huh. So when you were playing poker, did you learn by playing, or how did you get to be a good poker player? I think with poker, you're you're doing 80% of your learning by playing, but you're also having conversations with other poker players. So I used to be very active on something called the 2 plus 2 forums, which are these big poker forums where you mm. kind of say, here's a tricky situation, and should I have folded or, or called or raised here, right? And you debate that, and you look at other people's hands. And I made thousands of posts in this forum. In some ways, it's silly because you're up against your closest competitors. They're all reading it, but... Um, the poker economy was good enough back then where it's like, you don't care that much if the other good players are getting better because the fish are so plentiful. <laughs> now, if you go to two plus two, um, I don't really play poker except, you know, maybe once a year if I'm in Vegas or something. Huh. But now if you go there, no one will share anything, right? It's all very sarcastic. If you want advice, now you have to buy a $100 an hour <laughs> streaming rental. The poker so economy changed. got tight. The poker economy got really tight. Once you had all this dumb money out of the game, like basically the problem is that there were players who were losing hundreds of dollars an hour. So either you go broke or you get better. Um, (laughs) But you can't kind of indefinitely lose $100 an hour. And then there were government regulations that went into place that made it very hard to deposit money. Eventually a lot of people were left with their money stuck in some companies that went belly up and a lot of scams and schemes and various things. So I... um, I got out in 2007 because I had started losing after the games came much tighter, after there were some government regulations passed. But that proved to be smart. I mean, you know, I kind of was a little bit off my peak profit, but still kept 70% of it, where if I had kept playing, things would have gotten worse. There was like Black Friday, and a lot of people were without their money for, for years. And yeah. so, so it was fortunate me for me in, in a lot of ways. Huh. And then you said you got the politics bug. Were these... Did these things feel sort of like of a piece to you at the time, like baseball, poker? Like, did these things sort of naturally follow, or did you view them as just interest? You follow this interest, and then you were tired of it, and then you you moved. I mean, I just wanted to dig into something, right? And so, um, for a while, I started this blog about burritos in Chicago, but that you know, burritos are fascinating, but not as fascinating as other walks of life. And so, but um, (laughs) but yeah, so actually, one reason I started following politics more is that. In 2006, there was a law passed called the UIGEA, which is something something Gaming Enforcement Act. Um, that law made it very difficult uh, for poker players, right? It was kind of the first of a series of actions that basically killed online poker in the United States. So was following that, was pissed off at the Republican Congress for passing that under kind of, and they shoved it into some other bill 
some uh, you know port security bill in the last minute and so i was like i want bill frist these people jim leach this congressman all these people who had helped pass this bill to lose and so following the 2006 elections more and in fact um a lot of the sponsors of that bill did lose not necessarily because of poker per se so that piqued my interest a little bit and got me reading more politics sites and then obviously there was an incredibly fascinating election cycle in 2008 and that was apparent by 2007 where you had every big name candidate running Giuliani and McCain and more obviously Clinton and Obama on the Democratic side Obama was someone who I'd not known um, but known of because at University of Chicago he ran unsuccessfully for Congress in that district when Uh I was a student there and he was kind of like kind of a you know big deal I'm like all these campus progressives like who's this Obama guy right what's really going on there just some hipster thing but it was cool I thought to have someone from my city um, where I lived at that point for 12 years running for running for president and when you when you started the blog was it called 538 at the beginning it's called 538 from the start from the beginning people start blogs and they just say you know I'm gonna start putting some thoughts up I'm interested in this and then some people in that era there was already like a blog business thing happening for some people and they sort of look at it as I'm going to start this and try to build it into something did you have one of those views about what it could be so I started out blogging anonymously at Daily Coast which still is a really fascinating site but it was a very good time for being a blogger in the sense that the barriers to entry were low and it was like very meritocratic, I think, right? So you start posting diaries on Daily Coast with no reputation at all. My, my handle was Poblano. It was a Mexican food rest, reference. And people start upvoting these things, or like Reddit does now, right? Just saying like, boy, this is good substantive stuff. And the idea was that you're trying to apply more analytics to politics and looking at the primaries first, right, before the general election started and kind of developed a following. Um, and eventually was getting enough readers on the blog where I'm like, well, I'd kind of like to spin things out on my own. Um, you know, I was primarily interested in the question of whether Obama or Clinton would have a better chance against McCain. So it's huh. a little bit like this Cruz-Trump question, except they had two good options instead of two <laughs> terrible options. Um, so collecting state-by-state polls and, that, and developing from that, and it went from something I thought, well, okay, here's something I'll spend five hours a week doing to something where you're spending 50 hours a week and kind of kind of blew up. I mean, there people forget, you didn't have this as much in 2012, which was a less exciting campaign, but people forget how singular the campaign can be on people's minds, right? And all of a sudden you go from getting um, 1,000 meters to 10,000 to 100,000 or something, and it kind of blows up at this geometric rate. And so it wasn't necessarily planned. I mean, there was the intuition of like, well, having fought through the Moneyball Wars in baseball, and there was a lot of progress made. And by the way, it's not like the stat heads won a unilateral victory. You know, it's more like people are like, we got to be smarter about making decisions and use different tools at our disposal. But politics coverage seemed very primitive as compared to sports, the decision making in, in politics. And frankly, I think it still is. The adaptation of eight years now after 538 was founded, there's still a lot of tension between um, empirically minded, data driven journalists and traditional ones. Whereas that dissipated actually fairly quickly in in baseball like the the people I mean, who were still, sort of like i don't like these numbers infecting the game there's still some of that but i guess the difference is that the teams in baseball kind of motivated a lot of that change but also in baseball you play a game every day the big all big problem in in politics is you only have one election every every four years i guess you have two primary campaigns every four years mm-hmm. 
Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Evan and Nate on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about a sponsor that's making today's show possible. This particular sponsor has made many shows possible for us, for they are our friends at Squarespace. Here's the thing I've been thinking about. Uh, this show of ours, we've been doing it for like three and a half years, and I've been thinking maybe uh, maybe we should have some swag. Maybe it's time for us to sell something. That's like a thing that savvy business people do, right? They sell things with their logo on them. Uh, maybe we should do that. And if we were going to do that, I can tell you how we do it. We would do it with Squarespace because Squarespace is the easiest way, the best way, the only way to build a website. Everything is drag and drop. You don't need to know a lick of code. We could get this online store for our business up in seconds. There's really no excuse. So if you've got a website that you've been meaning to build, go to squarespace.com, start your free trial, start building that site. And when you sign up, which you inevitably will, use the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Thank you, Squarespace. Thanks also to Trunk Club, who's going to make it super easy for you to spruce up your wardrobe for spring. Here's how they do it. You get a stylist. You don't have to go to a store. You just go to trunkclub.com slash longform. That's trunkclub.com slash longform. Type in your measurements, share your likes and dislikes, and you're going to get your very own personal stylist for free. They'll pick your clothes from over 80 top brands and ship them right to your door. You keep what you like. You send back what you don't. Trunk Club is not just another way to shop online. Your stylist is going to take the time to really understand your unique look. And if you live in Dallas, New York, L.A., Chicago, or D.C., you can stop by one of their clubhouses and work with your stylist in person. Again, it's all for free. Trunk Club is not a subscription service. There's no monthly fee. Your stylist is free. Shipping is free. And you have 10 days to try on the clothes. If you don't like them, send them back for free. Premium clothes. Expert advice, no work. Thanks to your very own personal stylist. Only at Trunk Club. Go to trunkclub.com slash longform and uh, start looking better. Okay, let's get back to Nate and Evan. So I want to go back for a second. So when you talk about this sort of branching off 538 and then an audience starts building, at that moment, did you feel vindicated or excited or like, in any way afraid like now I am my calculations my assumptions are now exposed to a much wider group of people I'm not sure I ever felt afraid I mean there are times when you get caught up in things and I mean first of all people people forget how busy I guess they don't forget right but you might not realize like how busy you get yeah and when you kind of pause to catch your breath then then it's kind of strange but it's like um I know. I'm trying to think of a less cliched term, but it is a little bit like the roller coaster thing where you're kind of strapped in and it happens very quickly and you get back to the station and you're like, oh, that was weird, right? Yeah. Um, but you still are strapped in. And sometimes I'll have times when people will like, um, you know, if you do a TV appearance, there's like a half-life where people will then recognize you on the street for the next few days. So uh-huh. there's, there are sometimes those moments, but, but you just get kind of caught up in stuff. And, and so I think the weirdest thing is that when there's a public persona of yours and associations people have with you that you don't really control yourself. What do you sense that perception is or has become? I mean, I think people think that I take myself more seriously than I really do. I don't know if it always comes true, but I'm pretty like irreverent and sarcastic and I kind of don't give that much of, I mean, I'm passionate about my work, right? But like, I don't know, you know, it's interesting to me and I focus a lot on my process and beyond that, I'm kind of like, well, you know, Fuck you. I mean, if it, it's if hopefully if our predictions do well and we think we do really good work. And if you don't like it, then you can read someone else. But like I'm more process focused and less 
outcome focused yeah i guess is one part of it and i think it's more it's more of a creative process too than than people realize it does seem like there's one of the things that you probably confront just looking at it from the outside is like an assumption that you have a supercomputer running in here and it like spits out predictions and then you relay those predictions and those predictions are supposed to be right. They're like, quote unquote, like predictions of what is going to happen. Yeah. And that's maybe the most frustrating part is I wrote this book, The Signal and the Noise, that came out in 2012. And it's kind of all about the limitations and failures of predictions and the importance of being probabilistic and and stating your assumptions. So it's kind of weird that I'm the guy who always gets stuck kind of rooting for the favorite to occur because uh-huh. I know in a perfectly rational world, then if you make an 80-20 prediction that people should know that, you know what, not only will this prediction not be right all the time, but you did something wrong if it's never wrong, right? The 20% underdog should come through sometimes. People in sports understand that sometimes a 15 seed beats a two seed in the NCAA tournament. That's much harder to explain to people in politics. People are very kind of rigid, I think, in in their thinking. Well, in some ways... The, you know, obviously it was this big thing that calling the 2012 election and all yeah. 50 states. Was there some way in which that was a curse? Like it had been better if you got some wrong? Because I feel like that <laughs> did help create this expectation, yeah. this like soothsayer expectation. I mean, in a narrow sense, I think like in terms of the opportunities I had, it was probably good. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you knew that you were going to not be able to match a perfect record and it kind of created this dissonance with our message about be probabilistic and be uncertain. You know, we were lucky. I mean, we actually ran diagnostics that said, what's the distribution of how many states will get wrong? And there was only a 20% chance or something we would get all 50 states right. <laughs> but of course, no one referenced that afterwards, that that idea. No, no one referenced that afterward. And, and I don't know. I mean, but we do try and be honest about it and kind of say, like, here are the limitations of what we're trying to do. And, you know, ultimately, it is competitive. You should be kind of comparing your record against other people's and it's kind of like people think that oh we're going to get things right 100% of the time probably not true probably of the times when we disagree um, with the conventional wisdom you know I think I hope we'll be right 60% of the time Um, if you're making bets in poker or say betting on NBA games and you win 60% of your bets you're going to be one of the most successful gamblers of the world in Mm -hmm. fact almost no one gets 60% they might get 55 56 57% of their bets, right? Hmm. (laughs) Um, So the fact that like when we go neck and neck or head to head with kind of conventional punditry and we, and we usually wind up being right, like that's pretty good actually, but not because we're smart because like political pundits are both not well trained in the sense that none of us get very many data points to look at, but also their incentives are to make news, to cater to partisans, right? It's hard to go on TV and convey uncertainty or probability we've you know tried that for a long time we've learned a few tricks when we're writing on our own site the visualizations mm-hmm. are very mm-hmm. important but that's hard to do if you're kind of put in like a proverbial or literal i guess box in a four minute tv segment <laughs> literally literally you're in a box and someone shouts at you yeah i mean it's basically what it is i mean that format is we just still lose some tv now and then but like that format is like the least conducive to what we're trying to do it's there's this whole notion now that publishers should be web publishers should be platform agnostic and and they're happy to have their content directly hosted by Facebook or Google or, or Apple or whatever else. We don't like that idea, not for any commercial reason per se, but because we want to give you the context. You know, we're not a takeout 
restaurant uh-huh. or a dine-in <laughs> restaurant <laughs> where you come here and you understand the food more because of the experience that we curate for you. And it has to do with the fact that, look, we spend a lot of time rigorously copying editing articles, like a lot of times about kind of the visual style, more importantly than those things maybe about the, the interactive graphics that we have. Um, so we want the whole context because the ideas that we're presenting are complicated in some ways. Um, we don't think they should come across as complicated, but the whole magic, I guess, is that you're taking things that are quite complex and because you've spent a lot of time, it's not easy to do, you spend a lot of time as a journalist, both on the researcher reporting or the modeling in our case, but also on the explanation, the presentation, then, you know, it's like you go to a good restaurant and you're like, boy, this dish is so simple, but how is it so perfect, right? It's like one of those types Mm -hmm. of experiences. The minute that you are kind of delivering takeout instead, then all that context gets lost. And so that's why, you know, we like to play in our own our own playground, so to speak. When did you start conceiving yourself as a journalist? Like when you went to the Times, were you already thinking like, I'm a journalist and I'm a, I am joining the New York Times, the you know prestigious journalistic organization? Or when you got there, were you kind of like, I'm not, I'm not one of these people, I'm, I feel different? <laughs> More the latter. I mean, we got along really well with the, um, with the really amazing New York Times graphic and interactive team. That's kind of the people that we, we sat with. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we were, pretty separate, literally on a different floor from like the political um, reporters. And, you know, to me, that was that was fine. You kind of have a team of rivals thing going on a little bit. Um, but, you know, when I when I call myself a, a journalist or call what we do like data journals, which a team I don't a term I don't love, by the way, huh. but like I think it should be like empirical journalism, but that's like not very sexy and it's also a little pretentious. But anyway, um, but no, it's it's trying to be a little bit provocative in part because I think like you know fundamentally if you're working on a data set then it's actually very similar to reporting in the sense that you know you're trying to like I said grow up around for what the real story is and oftentimes it's not the story that you see on the surface oftentimes a data set contains errors and bugs and you have to really kind of go at it in three or four different ways and add other data call people (laughs) collaborate before you really understand what the real story is. And so in that sense, it's kind of very classically, I think you'd call it reporting almost. And the notion that like somehow there's this privilege accorded to in political journalism, people who rely on interviewing powerful political sources, like to me, uh, you know, look, I think they're, I really appreciate it. Like the great work the Washington Post has done this cycle. I think they have an amazing team over there. I used to rag on Politico. I think they do great reporting and that reporting is fine but to me that's like one quite narrow tool in the arsenal and not one that should be over prestige or under prestige relative to everything else and the fact that that's kind of synonymous with what journalists do doesn't make a lot of sense right you know mm-hmm. i could be snooty and say well actually what we do is much nobler i'm not going to do that i mean i think there's great work done by a lot of people but what we do i don't know i guess i feel like we've earned the right to to call ourselves journalists because what we do it's it's hard work it requires a lot of training, so it is a profession. And half that work is roughly in figuring out how to communicate it to a wide audience, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. Was that a natural or smooth transition to, from writing everything yourself to managing all these people? And how many people are here? I mean, like 30 or so, depending on how you count. Yeah, and kind of like having a lot of what's on the site be not explicitly you. Like, was that, was that a difficult change to make? 
Well, it's great when something amazing goes up on the site and you get and you get even partial credit for it and someone else did all the hard work. No, I mean, it, it took some time, I think, because, you know, 538, or I'm, I'm kind of talking about the royal we, but like, you know, but there's a particular approach that we take to our work that isn't widely replicated. So it's not like you can hire from other organizations people are used to writing in, in this style. Um, so, you know, we have a keen sense for what's a 538 story and what isn't a 538 story that we have learned through experience, but can frankly be kind of hard to articulate. We know how to do it by, by example, and we can kind of put some words on it, right? That, you know, um, we like stories that are critical. We like stories that kind of are transparent and, and show their work. That doesn't mean we're against storytelling or narrative or any of, of that stuff, but we are a different kind of shop. And so, so that made things harder would you see things on the site and say like, I wish I had written that instead of someone like, do you have a feeling of loss of control over what's going up? It was tricky at first. I mean, I, I think the site was not all that great in the first three to six months of its existence. And sometimes we'll kind of go back and say, um, we just celebrated our two year anniversary recently, but we'll go back and say, look at what we published two years ago, because that'll make us feel better about like where <laughs> we're at today. But, but it's hard, you know, it is a relatively new and different form of journalism, and there are lots and lots and lots of antecedents, right? So, um, you know, the term computer-assisted reporting mm -hmm. has a very, very long history. So that part of it's not new at all, and we're also kind of borrowing from the academic and scientific traditions in some respects, right? What is fairly new is trying to present stuff that really kind of takes a more scientific, methody approach and a more rigorous approach, but produce quite a bit of content for people on a daily basis that part's pretty new and that's where the challenge is right it's like some... hard to scale something that takes that much it takes some time to make it happen yeah it's like super labor intensive so you know we looked at some stats where digiday a while back published data on how many page views news organizations are getting how many articles they're publishing and how many people they have right and so we were like a real outlier in a couple of ways one is that per article that we publish we get like this extremely high number of views because everything that we do is over a certain threshold we also publish very little relative to the number of people we have on staff so we have 30 people or so depending on how you count um, part-timers and various odd cases and publish six or seven people uh, articles a day most newsrooms of our size now would publish 30 or 40 things a day with a staff that size you might not see them because they publish them and they get buried we're fundamentally kind of on the slow-ish journalism <laughs> side mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if people get that as much I think they kind of think oh data journalism it's like it's really easy to do but no one cares about it. it's kind of the reverse like people love when we do like a really deeply reported story about like Flint for example where you're combining quite traditional reporting we had a reporter on scene there with graphics and analysis right we did a big analysis of uber usage in New York we did a freedom of information request and before the city spent two million dollars like basically come to our conclusions that um, that Ubers were displacing yellow cabs in central Manhattan instead of adding traffic to the streets. You know, we kind of did that before them. So projects like those are extremely satisfying, but they also take take a lot of work. And we kind of realize that, like, yeah, you can kind of put out data as trivia. You're like, here's a cool thing that happened, and here's some data on that. There were a lot of articles that were just kind of data as factoid in our first Mm -hmm. couple of months without context and a little bit of that's okay but but there was much too much of that instead of things that drilled a little deeper and kind of really our best work is 
pretty hypothesis driven, right? Where we want to kind of figure out how this thing works. And so instead of just talking about it, let's say take some initiative and figure it out ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes as part of that, you're like, well, actually, I kind of don't know very much about this. So therefore I should consult um, someone else. But the point is that, you know, our journalism requires expertise that isn't just the expertise of how to talk to people, which is a very, very, very valuable part of journalism and an increasing part of what we do. I mean, we do way more traditional reporting than people might realize, but, you know, we are the people who are kind of applying our own BS detector to, to the work. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship to the idea of, like, quote-unquote, explainer, explainer journalism or, like, yeah, Vox? We have this, like what, what? we have this kind of weird... They get lumped uh, in together. Yeah, there's kind of this love. I mean, I don't think I don't think they're the same thing, really. You know, one being that I think I think we do a lot of original work where um, where it's kind of research intensive and and like I said before, where I define like working on a data set as a type of reporting. It's kind of very reporting intensive. Look, there's wonderful work that Vox does, and I think uh, you know I criticize them a lot at times, but I recognize they started about the same time we did, and I think they're a much better publication now than they were six months in. I do think there's sometimes a presumptuousness to explain our journalism where it's a notion that, hey, we have everything figured out, and here's everything you need to know, right? Like, that framing strikes me as wrong, because our framing is more like, um, hey, reader, we're trying to figure this out together with you and the world's a complicated place, but here are the things that after having spent a lot of time on it, we think are probably true, right? It's just a different kind of perspective, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't ever want to have the definitive guide to to X because, you know, X is always a work in progress, especially for the more interesting things. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you pay, pay any attention to the, like, meta journalism discussions around I feel like that like you guys started at the same time so you get caught up in this idea of them being similar and then this other similar idea of like personal brands like p- individuals who are developing publications and sites whatever around themselves and is that something that you you perceive or have thoughts about or you just try to shut that shut that part out the trade press in terms of of journalist focused trade press it's not that big so you can kind of read all the stuff that's worth reading and it doesn't take up too much time but i think (laughs) i don't know you know i think the better work that we're doing the less of it i tend to read yeah you know it's good to have a sense for where the industry is at um and it's interesting in that you know one thing people i think get conflated a little bit is like you know 538 has a kind of different approach not totally new i was going to say it has a lot of legacy but a different approach to journalism itself we don't have a particularly novel business model (laughs) of any kind right it's a kind of very standard business model where you know we could get in a debate i I would say you know i think that um some publishers are spreading themselves too thin by trying to curate content for for snapchat and trying to maintain a presence on six different social networks and being indifferent toward where their content appears but you know we're just trying to be kind of industry average or industry plus <laughs> about mm-hmm. that stuff and not and we're not solving journalism's problems that way it's more like the journalism itself and so sometimes those things get get lumped in and be like i don't see what 538 is doing that's different you know where's their snapchat presence and it's like well it's kind of more in more on the whole approach where is we your take, snapchat presence i don't know we we do really well on twitter and you know partly the personality of 
Twitter, like a little neurotic, right? Yeah. Um, a little bit of debate, a little bit of humor, yeah. actually, and provocation. Like for some reason, like that more suits our personality than Facebook, where it's like oozes sincerity. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you two questions about ESPN, which risk like some person in a suit coming in and like hitting you <laughs> with a basketball. I'm yeah. not sure what will happen because we're in the ESPN office. But the first one is just when Grantland went away, did you have to like gather your staff and be like, we're good here? Or like what impact did that have, if any, on what you guys were doing or how you felt about what you were doing? You're part of the same organization. The demise of Grantland didn't happen all at once. There were a number of turning points mm. where um, things could have gone in a way that was helpful to Grantland's long-term survival or harmful. And at most of those forks, like, um, like it was harmful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we were still, at least I was, you know, fairly shocked when it was shut down. But it's a kind of shock where if you have an aunt or uncle who's old and it's like, oh, well, they have stage four cancer. They're going to, it's, you know, it's not, so it wasn't like, it's shocking in the sense that it's a really big deal. And we're, we talked with Grantland. We love Grantland as readers. Um, you know, there are people in our office that were dating people that worked for Grantland. So there's all that stuff, right? But it took a while. And so we weren't totally unprepared. But yeah, mm. I mean, those were really, really awful days, right? And, you know, we had kind of assurances from the star that these properties are being evaluated separately so it was kind of a case where actions spoke louder than words where we knew that our headcount had been gradually growing and like our traffic was good and we were selling more ads so the things that you know you kind of look at as objective benchmarks we were we were happy about but you know both as a reader and a fan of grantland and kind of as their colleagues and it was a a difficult time yeah is there a need or sense of being like individually profitable as a unit within the larger structure you know, ESPN will tell us to worry about, first of all, you know, are you doing good work? Because the whole point is that this is kind of a prestige play for ESPN and ABC. They do look at traffic, you know, that gives you the better sense for, for how much long-term ability you have to monetize things. They look about how are the partnerships going with, with ESPN and, and ABC News, too. For the NCAA tournament, we have these live updating win probabilities. And yeah, very good about fishing those on the homepage. And they do that not because they have to, but because, like, that's a really cool way to to watch the game, right? Yeah. For both men and women. So they would love if you have the UConn women's Final Four game on and 538 as your second screen. Now they're using it both ways. And yeah. so, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I could come up with a list of of 20 things that I would want ESPN to do differently. But the fact is, fundamentally, they do the two most important things right, which is that they, number one, they fund us, right? So we're able to kind of pay, pay people respectable wages and grow the staff at a kind of healthy pace. Number two, they stay out of our way editorially. There's not editorial interference. And so if those two things are true, if they if they pay you, if they let you publish what you think is good work and basically make our basically reasonable people to deal with, right? That's pretty good. Yeah. You've talked about in the political arena, the way that punditry is sort of... Uh, dubious uh, in its approach many times to predicting things or analyzing things. And that is the way that I feel as a (laughs) a sports watcher about watching sports. Like if you watch a basketball game and they win on a last second shot, when it goes to the studio afterwards, the team that won, the people that they have lined up there will say, (laughs) well, they out rebounded them by 10 rebounds. 
And if that shot had not gone in, they would pick another statistic, like outside shooting, and they would say, well, look, they shot better than them. It's actually the worst example of cherry picking data <laughs> to support your conclusions. And you now live amidst an organization that is in some ways built upon that idea of having people in the studio who just say like, I think this or that will happen, or I think this or that just happened. Does that make you crazy? That's my question. Not really. I mean, look, I really do think that people in sports tend to be more good humored about it than people in yeah, politics. Yeah, that's true. It's a little, um, it's a little more lighthearted. But look, look, ESPN, it's like two thirds of the sports media industry, or I don't know how quite you put it, right? <laughs> but I would, I would literally guess that if you looked at like ESPN's overall um, budget for editorial functions, it's probably like something like half or two thirds of the overall spend on sports media. And so, you know, you're getting a whole cross section of of everything. I do think, and you know, I have been in discussions with ESPN for for a long time, and you know, I partnered with them on the Soccer Power Index way back in 2010 when I was at Baseball Prospectus. We used to file articles, right? So, you know, my, my, my bylines appeared at ESPN going back to 2002 or 2003 wow. or something. I remember I was still at my corporate job. I remember sometimes I one time saw one of my ESPN.com pieces that had been printed out like on the bathroom floor. I'm like, now I've made it, right? <laughs> People are reading my articles when they take a dump. At KPMG. At KPMG, yeah. ESPN is relatively open to to change as compared with with a lot of places, right? At the times, I think you were more likely to have someone say, well, you know, I don't like that 538 published that. We never get that at ESPN. We never have Skip huh. Bayless saying, I can't believe you guys had this take, right? Um, that would be amazing. Yeah. So let's talk about Trump. Yeah. <laughs> He's come up a little bit. But I think the thing that's come up around Trump is we've referenced it in different ways a couple of times, which is people saying that you missed it, that you said very confidently the chances of Trump uh, succeeding in the primaries is very low. And now clearly he's succeeding beyond most people's expectations. There's a few outliers who did predict it. But why do you think that that transpired? Like what originally led you to the conclusions that now you seem less likely? <laughs> well, I mean, I do. I, I sound very pedantic when I say this, but like if he doesn't win the nomination, then the original prediction is technically right doesn't mean there's nothing you can learn from it that's fair but, no, but that's, yeah. it, so it's not just totally but the point is that our prediction was about will trump win the nomination or not uh-huh. and it got lumped together with a lot of people who are like oh i think well this thing he said about making kelly he's going to disappear now that we never said that in fact we wrote after he insulted john mccain that we we're like well he's kind of a troll anyway and if you're a troll you're going to like this and so he'll have some staying power so uh-huh. our prediction as yet uncomplete is whether he'll win the nomination or not. But that I said, I clearly would put a higher chance on him winning the nomination now than would have back in in August, July, when we first started writing about him. Do you think there was something about the model that failed to account for Trump? Or do you think that Trump is a unique singular figure, a black swan, I guess, would be the term? So there's not a model per se. I mean, this was, and that's one of the reasons why maybe we get ourselves in trouble is that we're just kind of, you know, until we have a model, we're probably no better than any other pundits. Um, but the, the mental framework behind it is that, number one, you've never had anyone like Trump be a nominee, at least not um, since people started voting in primaries and caucuses in 1972. Uh-huh. Therefore, whenever you're saying this time is different, something really extraordinary is going to happen, well, the probability of that probably isn't too high. Uh-huh. Um, Number two, for many, many months, the primary evidence people were citing for Trump's staying power were his polls. Well, the polls are not 
historically very reliable early on. So it's like, well, you know, we start out, if you want to be fancy about it, with what we call like a prior belief, a Bayesian prior that says, this type of thing is pretty unusual. We're not sure if it's a one in five chance or one in 500 chance, but, but at least would be fairly against any precedent. And these polls don't mean very much yet. And so, um, and so that was a big reason for it. But mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of the question of is Trump like a, a black swan or should people have known all along? I think the answer is that, you know, if you ever watch one of those like Nova or frontline specials about a plane crash or something, it's like, you know, three or four different things have to go wrong and each of them individually is kind of things you should have known were coming but the combination is unlikely so i think it's it's the combination of of a couple of things we probably underrated one of which was the kind of lack of control that the republican quote-unquote establishment had over the party and how much the republican party was in disarray and was decaying and there were norman arnson this guy i mentioned there were definitely signs of that and we had written about some of those signs but you have never had a political party get in in this bad a way so suddenly. It almost is without precedent. And yet the fact that they had had near misses, right? You did have these kind of Herman Cain candidates rise up in 2012. And we said, well, see, this proves that in the end the establishment wins. Well, maybe all these close calls are a sign of problems. or not just in the nomination process, but also the fact that they have trouble picking a House speaker and these shutdowns and debt ceiling debates, right? Primary challenges a lot of signs that the GOP was becoming a dysfunctional political party. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, though, is that, frankly, how much racism, how much conspiratorial thinking there is in the country still, how much anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment, and how those have become kind of the new focal points of, or the renewed focal points of the of the culture wars. I mean, how little have we heard about gay marriage and, and abortion mm-hmm. this cycle? I could have helped you with that because I'm a weird... A listener to right-wing talk radio and have yeah. been for like two decades you could feel it that coming it was just like in in the air with that stuff like yeah the like latent racism and the anti-immigrant sentiment is like always there but that that is part of it and it's funny to me how people kind of talk about well trump is just a breath of fresh air right and that was kind of some of the punditry early on it's like you know the times when he really climbed in the polls were when he said you know stuff about Mexicans when he said he had actually stagnated for several months. People forget this now until Paris and San Bernardino. And then um, when he said, let's ban all Muslims, that was a popular plan with certain types of Republican voters. Right. So there's kind of that part where all these demons in American history have not totally gone away. And when you have major political upheavals, they very often are tied to questions of, of race. Right. The third part of it is that the way Trump has played the media and the fact that he so dominated media coverage and not just the volume, but also how he would was able to sweep any other story off the front page, create these kind of bandwagon and momentum effects. You know, so that third part of the story, I'd say we kind of got very on the the first article I published about Trump is how Donald Trump is the world's greatest troll was the title of it. And that kind of in July really got the media part of it right. Although even then I thought eventually probably people would get bored of the Trump story. But it's a combination of those three things, right? If the GOP had had a better plan to stop Trump, well, you know what? He's actually not that popular. He's gotten 37% of the vote so far. The problem is that 63% has been divided between three, four, five, originally 16 Mm -hmm. other candidates. So if they had kind of a better plan from the get-go, where frankly, if Marco Rubio were just a slightly better candidate, right, and were a little smoother in debates, had one or two more 
credentials. I mean, these things are pretty path dependent. And Trump's, first of all, it's actually pretty tenuous if he's going to get enough delegates or not, right? So the thing is, I think, a little closer than people realize. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, if he had even 5% less of the vote, then you could have a very different type of, of race. But it's a, it's a kind of combination of multiple things happening that individually aren't that unlikely and maybe you should have seen coming, but they kind of all have to occur together for Trump to win. And they all have occurred, maybe. Yeah. And when you when you write about the media and the way the media has confronted Trump, do you, I mean, you guys are also the media. Is there part of you that also feels what I imagine all political reporters feel right now, which is a sort of like, oh my God, Trump, but also thank God for <laughs> Trump. Like Trump is incredible copy and probably traffic yeah. and all sorts of things. That's why no, there's I mean, that I, coverage. The traffic that Trump produces is is pretty extraordinary. Although mm. one of the funny things people realize is like we get more views on average from a Bernie Sanders story than oh. than a Trump story. Huh. So, um, but no, I mean, yeah, it is a real boon to publishers. So sometimes people are like, well, you know, how dare we produce this content? You know, it seems a little insincere for me. And there are deeper problems that kind of Trump uncovers. One of them, which is this empirical problem, like, well. Um, you know, we're all relying on this vocabulary of past races, and now he's on a different script, and we're writing the rules, what do we do? Um, you know, one is a problem of editorial prerogative, where uh, he can constantly distract the media from whatever it was doing before, and they all run away. And so, look, a lot of the Trump stuff Trump's doing is either narrowly or broadly newsworthy, right? Like, yeah. you know, some things he does are generally interesting, and the whole Trump phenomenon is fascinating. So, you know, to me, it's not that Trump is being covered too much per se, so much as that, you know, there are finite resources, both for news producers and for news consumers. And so that means Bernie Sanders, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, Ted Cruz, everyone but Trump and maybe Clinton have been covered too little and not really vetted very much. And we Mm. face these decisions too, right? Where it's like, you know, there was one um, Democratic debate that we just we usually live blog debates which took the night off right and we're like well we're having technical difficulty we didn't lie about it like but like <laughs> you know and the reason why is because we had had covered like four primaries that week and like two republican debates in the super bowl or something right and it's like you know you have finite resources as a news organization for how much you can devote to the campaign so trump presents a lot of problems also a problem of kind of journalistic objectivity where you kind of hear people say well Trump made remarks that some would describe as sexist like that pisses me off right they were sexist um and to say as much i mean i do think that like you know this is part of why i think buzzfeed's having a very good election cycle because they have a editorial guidebook that was written 4 years ago and not 40 years ago that Trump is kind of exploiting the goodwill that the media affords to candidates yeah are you working those investment banker hours now that you tried to avoid by originally going into consulting instead of investment banking? <laughs> it ebbs and flows. I mean, there are, you know, the good thing about it is now where I'm doing a combination of writing and, and modeling and editing and management and a little bit of media now and then. Those are all kind of very different parts of of your skill set that you're using. And so that keeps you like a little bit fresher. But I don't know. You know, I try and take, you know, when I'm taking time off, I try and take it kind of wholly off, I guess, right? You know, I, you ever read like those Sunday routine yeah, columns yeah. in your time? You're like, well, I woke up at 7 a.m. and I went jogging and then I ran 14 errands, right? It's like, you know, I wake up and kind of get out of bed when I feel like it, right? And then get some 
greasy breakfast or brunch somewhere <laughs> and then have a beer and watch football and then kind of half-assedly work on an article, right? And then, then at 10, I'm like, oh crap, I have to file by the morning. And then you start working on things and have some coffee and stuff, right? But it's like not this highly organized routine. I try and take my time off when when I can be off. Because it is a creative process, right? And I kind of always go by, by having kind of ebbs and flows of energy and and momentum. I'm yeah. kind of not very good. Actually, you know, I still get into the office pretty late, right? Like 10.30 or 11 often. And at first I felt really guilty about that. I'm like, why well, can't I be one of these normal people who like kind of wake up at 7.30 or 8, right? But then I realized like I have to do that because I need I need some creative time. And if mm-hmm. I'm in the office, then kind of by default, the door is open and um, and there's lots of problems I do have to deal with. But I still tend to be someone who needs to be fairly solitary to do creative work. And so there are times when I'll wake up now at, at 8.30, which is early for me, and then do an hour or two of writing. Because I know that when I come in this office door to the time I leave, um, I'm not going to turn in my best my best copy. It just kind of requires mm-hmm. more more of an immersion that I think is hard to get if you if you're not in your own kind of cocoon. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I, I mean, I appreciate all the value of, I mean, particularly on the journalistic side, but I'm thinking more of sports, of like the application of data to sports and baseball and all these things. But I, I am sort of one of these anachronistic people that I love soccer. And I feel like soccer has been relatively immune to that analysis in some ways. And I love that. Like, I don't <laughs> want it. I don't want that level of like statistical analysis to yeah. infect this thing I love. Yeah. And I can't even tell you exactly why, like why would that, it's not gonna ruin it for me or something. But my question is, are there things like that for you? Like, are there things in your life or that you love that you actually don't want to apply data I to? I mean, I go to a lot of New York Rangers games, right? And I'm not like looking up stats on my phone or I'm just kind of <laughs> cheering and stuff. I mean, yeah, when I watch sports, I don't necessarily, you know, I do it for the spectator experience, I suppose. But look, I'm like, I'm very analytical about a lot of things that I do, which doesn't mean you don't appreciate them. In fact, it's kind of the opposite, right? You know, it's because you love things that you want to learn more about them. So I spend a lot of time figuring out like where I should like eat. If you don't have a lot of time, right, then maximizing the quality of your dinners at least around here, around Upper West Side, not a lot of good lunch options really. So, you know, um, I want to make sure I pick a good restaurant (laughs) every night. So there's a lot of kind of thought behind that, right? Where you're like kind of, well, how can I make inferences based on the combination of these Yelp reviews and New York Times review and my previous experience, my friend's recommendation. And so I have all these kind of, I get very picky about like kind of where I go out to eat. I know, I mean, you know, again, it's, but it's curiosity about things that you love and that and that you care about. The things I don't care about, then <laughs> just go with the flow. It's usually not <laughs> worth like fussing too much over which kind of pair of pants to buy or something. But, you know, having four or five things that you're deeply passionate about you just kind of love doing and being kind of nerdy about them in the sense you want to learn everything about them i think that's i think that's good all right nate thank you very much for taking this time thank you that's it for this week's long form podcast i'm evan ratliff one of the co-hosts of the long form podcast Thanks to Nate Silver for letting me come up to 538 and chat with him. And uh, you should check out their podcast. They have an elections podcast, the 538 elections podcast. It's fantastic. I listen to it myself. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Trunk Club, Squarespace, and Bombas. For Bombas, if you want to get some of those socks, you can go to bombas.com slash longform and get 20% off. 
Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and to our intern, Courtney Harrell, and we will see you next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.